We are celebrating Advent, and this is this time of the year where we take the weeks before Christmas, and as we head towards Christmas, we remember some aspect of the life of Jesus. We've been looking through the book of Isaiah, and we've also been lighting some candles here. All right, there we go. Who put the, who put the trick thing on, back on this thing, right? So we light a candle, one for each week. Last week, we lit the first candle to represent that God is with us. Tonight, today, we light the second candle, which represents the, birth, the virgin birth. Now, why do we light a candle? We don't have to light a candle, but uh, it's a light. And we were studying in our Sunday morning Bible study. We started in the Gospel of John, where it tells us that Jesus was the light of the world. And so we light a candle, and as we look at the light of the candle, we remember something about Jesus. So we remember, first of all, that God is with us. Jesus is with us. We remember also the virgin birth. And so this is just a little uh, uh, picture, a kind of symbol that as we look to this, we can remember something about Jesus. So that's why we light a candle. We don't have to do it, like I said, and not every church does it, but uh, we like to do that here. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7, so you're going to want to turn there. And I will be focusing on the great miracle of Christmas. And what I'm referring to is the virgin birth. The virgin birth is an amazing thing. And as unique as it is, it is not unique in the history of the world. And what I mean by that it's not unique is that so many others have taken the idea of a virgin birth or a special kind of birth and have kind of ported it into their maybe faith system or their story or something like that. There's something amazing and remarkable about the birth of a child, right, Philip? They're home, by the way, and everybody's doing okay uh, according to this morning, so praise the Lord for that. But there's something amazing and remarkable about the birth of a child. It is a miraculous event. And there's something even more remarkable about an unusual birth of a child. And so the world has made much of this idea of a unique birth or a remarkable birth or even a virgin birth. For you Star Wars fans out there, are there any Star Wars fans? Anybody? Anybody, anybody like Star Wars? Some of you are saying, what is Star Wars? What does that mean? In episode one, the Phantom, Phantom Menace, Shmi Skywalker tells Qui-Gon Jinn concerning the birth of Anakin. He's, she says this, There was no father. I can't explain what happened. So there you have the idea of a special, unique kind of, maybe virgin birth in the Star Wars movies. But it goes far before that, long before that. You have these hero myths. A virgin birth uh, be, uh, was a common element in these uh, in the mythology, the ancient mythology, the Roman mythology, or the Greek mythology, uh, they used miraculous conceptions or the conceptions of the gods uh, fathering children or something up to make the birth of a child unique in some way. And many have tried to correlate what's going on there to Christianity, but these, these other stories, these other myths, they're not Christian. They're just counterfeits of the truth, of the reality that took place in the birth of Jesus, the unique birth of Jesus. Why is this so prevalent? Why has the world 
latched on to this idea of a virgin birth or a unique birth or a miraculous kind of birth. Why? Because when you're talking about a hero, the hero cannot be ordinary, right? The hero has to be special, has to stand out in some way. And one of the ways they make the hero stand out is by giving the hero a unique or special birth. He must have something special or different about him in order to cause him to stand out. Now, if these mythologies, here's a question, uh, kind of a theological or philosophical question that we have to address. If these mythologies were written before the scriptures or before the prophecies in the scriptures, does that mean that Christianity is just a copycat of what other religions are doing? Now, that's a really a real question, an important question. But there's something that we have to remember about Scripture. It is not so much the time in which something is written down as it is in the whole flow, as it is how it fits together in the whole flow of the universe. So just because something in Scripture was written after some pagan practices kind of latch onto these things um, doesn't, doesn't nullify or take away from the impact of Scripture. Why? Because we believe in the truth of Scripture, and this is the truth, that God created everything, and that His plan, even though it wasn't written down from the beginning, His plan was woven into creation from the beginning, including the redemptive plan of Jesus Christ. The redemptive plan of Jesus was not an afterthought. It didn't develop over time. It didn't come to Isaiah, and then all of a sudden he decided, well, I think I'll, when Jesus is born, I'll make it miraculous. And so Isaiah, write it down for me. It wasn't like that at all. The redemptive plan of, of God was woven into the creation from before any of it was made. And so the truth of God, whether it's written or not, is present, and we would not be surprised, or we should not be surprised, if we find the, uh, the rest of the world in their resistance and rebellion against God kind of taking some of the elements and incorporating it into their own mythologies there. Just to give you an illustration of the importance of the virgin birth and that it wasn't an afterthought in Isaiah's time, that it was God's plan from the beginning, I think that we find something about it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis 3.15 is, is often referred to as the first declaration of the gospel. The first declaration of the gospel. Actually, I'm going to read it to you. So if we go to Genesis chapter 3.15, you can turn there also if you want. Keep your finger in Isaiah 7. But uh, you shouldn't have any fi trouble finding it because uh, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. All right? All right. So uh, now, the only problem is if you can't turn the pages like I can't turn my pages here, then it might be a little bit of a problem. But Genesis chapter 3.15, here is the prophecy that is often viewed as the first declaration of the gospel. This is God speaking to Eve. No, to uh, the serpent. This is the curse of the devil. It says in verse 3, uh, 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between, now look what it says. Your seed and her seed. Her seed. Now we know that the seed is not found in the woman, but in the man. But nevertheless, it says her seed here. And I think this is just kind of a, a, a uh, foreshadowing of the plan of God, a declaration of the plan of God. And, I, and, uh, and just a fascinating 
thing. And so we see that this allusion to this great work that God is going to do through this virgin woman that we know as Mary many, many years later. And furthermore, it should not surprise us to find these elements in the rest of the world because one of the devil's tactics is to imitate everything that God does. He imitates the things of God in order to deceive people. You remember the verse in 1 Corinthians. It says that the devil comes disguised as an... Does anybody know? As an angel of light. There is his deceptiveness coming through. There is his cloaking himself for what he really is. Appearing to be like something else. An angel of God. In order to deceive people. And so we, we find these deceptive acts throughout Scripture. So for example, just as there is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so there is a false trinity, dragon, antichrist, and false prophet. Just as Jesus died and rose again from the dead, so we find the antichrist dying and recovering from his wound. Just as the Spirit of God fills the lives of believers, we find false spirits filling and empowering unbelievers. So we should not be surprised to find imitations, even with respect to this, this idea of a virgin birth. And just because we find it in mythology doesn't mean that the truth of it ceases to be true. It continues to be true because God has ordained it to be true. And so the devil imitates them in order to confuse people and to deceive people. Now, Justin Martyr, you may or may not have heard of Justin Martyr. Um, is Ron back there behind the... Can you... There you go. No, we need to switch this. There we go. All right, Justin Martyr. He, he's one of the earliest church fathers. Um, his dates there are on the screen. 100 to 165. He's one of the earliest church fathers. And he's dealing with the Roman world and their mythology. And what he does is he takes one of the accounts. He's, he's defending the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus. It's not just about the birth of Jesus. But when he gets to dealing with the birth of Jesus, he takes one of their mythologies of this miraculous birth of Perseus. And he tells in his defense, he says, look, you believe in this miraculous birth of Perseus. Why can't you just believe in the miraculous birth of Jesus? So he uses their mythology in order to declare the truth. So his quote is this, And even if we affirm that he, Jesus, was born of a virgin, accept this in common with what you accept of Perseus. So this is a, this is a common thing. The Christians of uh, before are not afraid to deal with the false beliefs of the world because he, they know that they are there because uh, the devil seeks to deceive and to keep people from believing. And, you know, the more you hear of a virgin birth out there in the world, the less impact it has on us. It's one of the kind of the schemes of the devil in order to lessen the impact of the truth of Christianity. And so that's why I am not in a fan of shows like Lucifer and other shows that kind of make light of the demonic and uh, spiritual world, because the more that people are exposed to it, the, the less sensitive they become to the truth, the reality of these things. So anyway, that's uh, just kind of my two cents there concerning this. So we find the birth of Jesus surrounded in this miraculous sign. 
And it goes back to Isaiah chapter 7. And just to refresh your memory from uh, last week, what is happening in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah lived around the 7th or 8th century B.C., and he was a prophet for the southern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Hezekiah was king during part of his ministry. And uh, the Assyrians are threatening to attack, but that's still down the road a little bit. But what's happening at this particular time in Isaiah 7 is you have the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria have formed a coalition to come and to attack the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, it was important for the southern kingdom of Judah not to be overthrown because God had made a promise to David that one of his sons would sit on the throne forever. And so God was with the southern kingdom of Judah, even though King Ahaz was not following God like he should have been following God. In spite of Ahaz's lack of faith, God comes to be with his people and to protect them from the attacks of northern Israel and Syria. And so he comes to King Ahaz to talk to him, and he says to Ahaz, he says uh, something remarkable. He says to Ahaz, Ask of me a sign, and I, and I will do it so that you will know that I am with you. So if we go to our first point here, our first point is this, this morning. The virgin birth, and we're talking about the, why is the virgin birth necessary? That's kind of the question that we're going to answer this morning. Why is the virgin birth necessary? First, the virgin birth displays God's sovereignty. So if we go to Isaiah chapter 7, and we read in verse 10, it says, Moreover, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But, you will, but will you weary my God also? Therefore, now look at verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We see God's sovereignty displayed here because it ends up that God, instead of Ahaz, chooses the sign. God chooses the sign. He is the one who decides what is going to happen. He decided that the virgin would give birth to a son. He picked this sign. And it shows us that God is sovereign over all of the events of human history in order to bring about his plan of salvation. He is at work from the time of creation, from the beginning all the way to the end. God is at work. He is sovereign in all things. He has picked this sign. It is not something that we have decided on our own. God is the one who has done it. So what's God's sovereignty have to do with me? How does that encourage me? How, how do I take God's sovereignty and apply it to my life? Well, I believe that we can be encouraged by the sovereignty of God. Life, our life to us, might seem out of control. And I know that many of us in this church today are struggling with some pretty big things. A lot of us. It's kind of unique, um, given our history here. But uh, we're, we're just in a season where a lot of people are struggling with different things. Life seems to be out of control. And for us, it might be out of control. Actually, it probably is out of control. Well, let me say it more directly. Life is out of control for us. But for God, 
It is never out of control. It is never out of control. Never. He is the all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, and all-loving God. He is the all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, all-loving God. Let me say it one more time. He is the all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, all-loving God. Amen. Amen. And this is the part that we have to take to heart. That nothing unravels in his hands. So uh, my seatbelt, this is years ago, my seatbelt was not working. So I try to fix things myself, even though I don't know what I'm doing. And uh, so I took apart my seatbelt. And at the bottom of the seatbelt, there was this, this, you know, it was a coil. And the coil, I could tell, you know, the coil was kind of bent or twisted or anything. So I took the coil off, and as soon as I took it off, it just kind of went. <laughs> and what I had was this big ball of twisted metal. And there was no putting the thing back together again. That's because I'm not all powerful, and I'm not all wise, and I'm not all knowing. I'm just plain old dumb and stupid. And I can't do these things, but God is never like that. He is all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, all-loving. Things do not unravel for him. He is in absolute control of everything. He is in perfect control. He never goes to plan B. Never. He never goes to plan B. Nothing is ever a surprise to him. Now, we go to plan A and B and C and D and Z and Z, Z, A and A, Z and A, B, and, you know, we just keep on going and multiply letters down there. We just go from plan to plan, and we jump around sometimes, and we feel, uh, you know, just things are out of control. But it's never like that with God. He never goes to plan B. Everything is exactly like it should be. He is in control. Even when we sin and make mistakes. Now, this is really important for us to grasp. We were singing it this morning. Even when I stumble, even when I fall, even when I turn back, he's still in control. I don't know if that was the exact wording, but uh, Ben, you can help me. That, that was the, one of the, the verses that we sang in, in the song. And so, we might find ourselves sinning, taking drugs, choosing not to go to church, saying or doing unkind things to others, looking at pornography, eating too much, getting greedy, setting our affections on the things that are around us, watching inappropriate shows and movies, allowing bad health and circumstance to drain our faith, or we might find ourselves sinning any other kind of sin. And yet, even though we make these poor choices and sin against him, he is still sovereign, he is still in control, and he uses all those things to bring glory to himself, and to work it for good in our lives. That is a mystery, and by no means should it be kind of the green light to go ahead with our sins. We should never go forward in sin. But even when we stumble and even when we fall, he is still in control. He uses all things for our good and for his glory. And you know what that does for me as a believer? That gives me comfort that gives me joy, and that gives me hope. He's not going to discard me. 
He is not going to put me aside. He still loves me, and he is never thwarted, no matter what. Even when the devil attacks and destroys, and even when circumstances happen that are beyond my control and not my fault, he is still in control, and he is still working all things for good. He never moves to plan B. This was his plan. He said, he, he picked the sign himself, a virgin shall have a child. That is the sovereignty of God, and it brings comfort to us. The birth of Jesus Christ on Christmas Day, as we celebrate it, is God's plan, and we can be comforted by that. That's the first point. Secondly, the virgin birth. The virgin birth was a manifestation of God's direct intervention. It was a manifestation of God's direct intervention. So when God is picking a sign, he could have like made some kind of great thing happen in the, in the sky or in the universe. Uh, he could have caused you know, the ground to open up and he could have caused all kinds of things to happen. But what he did instead was he chose to be with us. He chose to intervene directly into the affairs of this world. And this gives me a connection with him. A son, God with us, shall be born. And he shall be born because I, God, am going to bring about the salvation of man. This is what he's saying. That he, God, is going to bring about the salvation of man. He is going to work it. He is going to be here to do it. He is coming to be present with us, and he is going to bring about all of the details. And so we look to Jesus Christ. He is the one who came to this earth. He took our sins upon him. What a gracious and loving act that was. That if we confess our sins and we confess him with our mouth and believe in our heart that he was raised from the dead, we shall be saved. It is about our salvation, and so we can look to Jesus, and if we confess our sins and we ask him to forgive us and to come into our lives and to take control, we experience this great work of salvation, and it is a work of God. He came right where we were in order to bring it about. And so this shows us that God is not far off. He is not way up there somewhere where we have no hope of reaching him in any way. He is not far away. He is present with us. He is here in this service right now. He is with each and every one of us today. He is not blind. He is not sleeping. He is not silent. He is with you. He sees you. He knows you. He knows your pain. He knows your struggle. He knows your confusion. He knows it all. He is with us because he has come here to where we are at. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, we have this great verse. It says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. And, and here's the part we usually focus on. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, in the context of Hebrews, this is the last chapter of the book of Hebrews, and the author is giving one exhortation after another, and in this particular verse, he's saying, don't, don't covet what you don't have. Be content with what you do have. And you don't need to worry if you don't have what you think you need. 
Because I am with you, he says, and I will, give, I will be with you, and I will never leave you. So I'll give you everything that you need. You don't have to worry about it. Therefore, following this exhortation, we have this next great part of the verse, the next verse. It says, therefore, we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Isn't that great? So he is with me. He, is, he will never forsake me. And because he is with me and will never forsake me, I do not need to be afraid because God is with me and he is my helper. I can live for him. I can serve him. I can glorify him in my life. That brings us to our third point concerning the virgin birth. The virgin birth points to the divinity of Jesus. The virgin birth points to the divinity of Jesus. Going back to our verse in Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, we talked about this last week, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but it says, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. And so we see that in the birth of this son, God is with us. This is a a pointer to the divinity of Jesus. He is God himself. He is part of that trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is God himself. And so this is a sign. This birth of this child is a sign, a pointer to the divinity of the Son. He is the one, he is God's Son, he, not just in a spiritual sense, but in his manifestation, in a physical sense, he was both divine and human, and he has come to bring about salvation for us. Um, John, in the, we studied, like I said, we're studying uh, the Gospel of John. We started it today in our Sunday morning Bible study, and the, the verse in John, it starts out, in verse 1 it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you have verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt with us. We are talking about God Himself. And so the virgin birth then is a pointer to the divinity of Jesus. He was not merely a great teacher or a great philosopher or a great mover or leader of men. He is Almighty God come down to deliver us from our sins. Praise be to God for that. Our fourth point this morning, the fourth purpose of the virgin birth, is this the virgin birth reveals how God works through us. Now, this was pretty amazing to me. And uh, I want to read, first of all, I want to read two verses from the New Testament. The first one is Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. So you can turn to Matthew, and uh, we can read this passage here, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. We're going to be turning to Luke, and there we'll have a longer passage to read. But in Luke chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now this is the means by which God brought about this miraculous conception of Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. If we turn to Luke chapter 1, we find something similar. Luke chapter 1 beginning in verse 26 
It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with thee. If you jump down to verse 34, it says, Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be that she would have a baby? How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel said, verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. With God, nothing will be impossible. Now in both of these passages, it is the Holy Spirit who comes upon Mary in order to bring about this virgin birth. Now, there are other possibilities. It could have happened in a different way than this. Jesus could have sprung up from the ground, just kind of stood up. Here I am, world, like Adam. Or Jesus could have descended from the heavens on a cloud, just like when he went up to heaven. He could have just descended from heaven. He could have descended not with a cloud, but with the armies of heaven, like he's going to do when he comes back the second time. He could have done it like that. But instead, it was the Spirit who came upon Mary and worked through her. The conception of Jesus is miraculous, right? And yet, from that point on, it goes through the normal process of humanity. And what I mean by that is, you have one miraculous act, and then you have him growing in her womb, him being born, him growing up, him living his life, and, his, and accomplishing the work. The miracle of the Holy Spirit, and then you have the normal process of life. And you know, I think that this is often how God works in our lives too. You have the miracle of the Holy Spirit who comes and He gives us new life and He, and he fills us and He guides us and He directs us and He strengthens us and He encourages us and He comforts us and He gifts us. And while there is a miraculous component for that, He uses us through the everyday ins and outs of life. And so, you know, we got to get out of bed in the morning, and we've got to decide to do what is right, and we've got to decide to open our mouths, and a lot of times we, and speak about Him, and a lot of times we don't feel like it, and we don't feel like serving Him, because we're still battling with the flesh. You have the miracle of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit lives and dwells within us, and yet there is the everyday in and out struggle that is common to us as men. And I think for some reason, this is the way God decided to do it. We see it in the birth of Jesus like that, and I think it's reflected like that in our lives. Now, you know, I would do things differently if it was up to me, you know what I mean? It was just like, uh, uh, you know, just kind of point my finger or speak a word and things just kind of change automatically like that. You know, I'd be, I'd be closer to that end of the spectrum rather than having to go through all this wrestling and fighting and, you know, I've got to figure this out. This is so hard. Why does it have to be so hard? I'd make it easier for myself. But this, this is how God has decided to do it. And maybe it's because He wants us to grow in our faith and He wants us to, uh, rather than, um, you know, do something 
automatically, he wants us to make the choice to do it his way. He wants us to choose. We're not, we're not robots programmed. We are, we are men that he moves on. And we have to say yes or no a lot of times and make the decisions and fight the fight. We have to fight the fight, the good fight of faith. And so it's miraculous. What God does for us in our lives through the Holy Spirit is miraculous on the one hand and yet ordinary and human on the other hand. And that's a mystery, but I think that's what we see here. And so the Bible encourages us. I'm going to go through these fast, but it encourages us, first of all, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. That is the exhortation that comes to us. Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit. The implication is, not that it is that it's not automatic. We are exhorted to it. So walk in the Spirit, O church of God. Galatians 5.16. 1 Corinthians 12.11. Use your gifts by the power of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.11. That brings us to our next point. And I think this is kind of the linchpin of the purpose of the virgin birth right here. This is the one that is that stands out among all of the others. And stands out, by standing out, I mean that it is the clearest that is given to us. And the clearest purpose of the virgin birth is that it was to be a sign. A sign. A miraculous sign. A miracle demonstrates God's power. And it shows God's power, as I said last week, if you remember. It demonstrates God's power in a visible way for something that is invisible in other ways. And so the birth of the child had to be miraculous because God is making a sign. And by making it miraculous, it sets it apart from everything else. But the purpose of the miracle was to point to the fact that this baby that is born, the miracle, is meant to bring salvation for us, the forgiveness of sins. And so when we come to this season of Christmas and we celebrate the birth of Jesus, here's what's happening. Gabriel appeared to Mary and pointed to Jesus. The virgin boy birth pointed to Jesus. The star pointed to Jesus. The wise men pointed to Jesus. Being, in, being born in Bethlehem pointed to Jesus. Herod's demonic obsession with finding the child pointed to Jesus. Even the death of all the babies in Bethlehem pointed to Jesus. The shepherds, after seeing the angel course, pointed to Jesus. The manger and the swaddling clothes pointed to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. He is our Savior from our sins. He is the one who gives us eternal life. Will you not believe in Him? Today, will you not turn your life over to him today? Trust in him. Trust in him with your salvation. Trust in him with the everyday circumstances of your life. It all points to Jesus. And let me close with this verse. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is all about Jesus. Believe in Jesus this morning.